This episode of Keep Classical Weird is supported by Aligned Artistry, offering exceptional public relations consulting to artists, arts organizations, and artistically-minded businesses. Aligned Artistry helps clients expand the impact of their work through refined and modernized branding and communication channels, leading to increased patronage and revenue, and allowing clients to do more of what they love. Information is available at AlignedArtistry.com. Today on Keep Classical Weird, I speak with founder of Ensemble Mikna Rouge. His name is Juwon Kim. And if you think about that for just a second, you may be able to see the inspiration for the name of his ensemble. It took me a little bit. Here's some theme song to get your brain working. Welcome, friends, to episode 63 of Keep Classical Weird. I am your host, Casey Bozell, and today you'll be hearing an interview with Juwon Kim, performer, composer, and founder of Ensemble Mignouge, based in Oakland, California. I have a funny personal history with this group. A few months ago, I was asked to be a last-minute sub on their Pacific Northwest tour, and I agreed, not really knowing what I was getting myself into. And as you'll hear, Ensemble Mignouge is a really unique and radical take in new music. There are elements of classical music and hip-hop, and as Juwan will explain, a philosophy centered around method sampling. Juwan and his MC Sandman have been running this ensemble together for several years now, and with the addition of thought-provoking narratives and street dance performance, their concerts are truly unlike anything I've ever seen. My name is Juwan Kim. I'm the artistic director and composer of Ensemble McNamuch, an Oakland-based hip-hop orchestra. So, okay. Hip-hop-based orchestra. So there's components of classical and hip-hop, which is super unique in our world. Would you be willing to kind of give us a little bit of background of how that all came came up for you and how it how it was created and where the idea like originally came from? Yeah, sure. So my idea for this group came as like a protest sentiment of protest in against the so-called concert music aesthetic. Because as I was studying more and more after my undergrad, I just felt disillusioned with the um you know, like a new music scene, because I felt like a lot of pieces that were coming out had no impact in the world. And I wanted to kind of like uh, figure out what, why that's the case. If it is indeed that the public must be educated, like other pe- like all these people believe in, and then there will be a revolution of, I don't know, like a serialist or other you know, schools of thought that will like, dominate the pop culture and having Britney Spears suddenly sing in 12 tone. (laughs) Is it going to actually happen or not? Or is it just totally misguided? (laughs) So, so I had that question in my mind and then the uncomfortable feeling grew and grew. And I decide to give a giant, giant middle finger when I did my, uh, you know, composer, concert it's it's a department concert at the conservatory i went to san francisco conservatory for a masters there i just 
had the traditional Pierre Ensemble, which a lot of new music ensembles use to push the narrative of uh, pushing the musical language forward. And then I added hip hop MC and a drum. And that made a big problem for a lot of teachers. A real quick side note here. The Pierrot Ensemble that Juan is referring to is the makeup of the small ensemble required to play Schoenberg's work entitled Pierrot Lunaire. The most bare bones Pierrot ensembles are composed of flute, clarinet, violin, cello, and piano. Juan augments this in his ensemble with bassoon, French horn, soprano, bass, and of course the MC. You know, there are three things I always say to people that I don't get in this country. To give you context, I came here to the United States from South Korea when I was 20 years old. I was completely formed as a Korean person. And uh, those three unusual and strange things are football, racism, and musical. So I think the, the idea of Black MC coming into the concert hall in relation to sort of this, you know, kind of flipped version of Pierre Ensemble rapping about, I don't know, prostitution. It's not going to be really going over well. So, <laughs> and um, yeah, it kind of like goes against the aesthetic, right? It goes against this like sacred or rigorous nature of classical music. So right. probably that's what they were feeling to my surprise. We were on, we got a full page write up on uh, Oakland Tribune, which was a very important newspaper uh, at the time. Wow. And the audience really loved it, and my MC loved it. Everybody loved it except my teachers, which was surprising and also uh, expected because I, I wanted them to get pissed off. So <laughs> that's what I was about to ask is I'm like, did you did you actually view your teacher's reaction as kind of like a, a badge of honor in a way, given what you were doing? Probably. I really didn't care <laughs> at the time. I just think that, okay. you know, the, the reason I I started classical music was me discovering Beethoven when I was 10 years old. You know, 10 is a special age for uh people because i think that you, you kind of come into you're almost puberty like you're puberty there right so and then you're thinking about the world differently mm-hmm. and this happens to a lot of physicists too and then they're like start wondering about these big questions and they stuck sticks to them and then they just pursue it that way and my moment 10 year old moment came to me in the form of symphony number no. five listening to top to bottom and I realized that, wow, this is really cohesive. I can hear the themes coming back. Why is what's happening here? And then after, subsequently finding out that he was completely deaf. How is that possible? And I wanted to be like him. Mm-hmm. So that was my awakening moment right. for me. What was interesting for me is like the, the rigor and the, the cohesion, the, the thought behind it, the construction. All these things were very interesting. I wanted to get into it. It was also new to Korea because, you know, we ain't, you know, we're, we're, you're eating kimchi and, you know, like we're not doing that kind of music. So I liked it because it was in, in my mind, it's, it, I know this sound, this might sound really crazy. It was a better version of pop music. Oh, okay. Yeah. Do you see what I'm saying? Because pop music also was foreign, but it sounded Sometimes stupid to me, but then this was better. It's like, oh, it sounds similar, but it sounds much more 
intricate. I want to do this because it's newer and foreign, exotic, blah, blah, blah. This is why I got into it. Okay. When I came here and then I realized, oh, this is just old ass music. <laughs> and people were playing this music with, you know, powdered wig. Not going to. No, no, no. I really want to get into how you define your music then, because you use a whole bunch of terms. But before we do that, can you go back? You've used the term MC a lot. Could you actually talk a little bit more about what that role is in your ensemble? Yeah, so MC is, right now, hip-hop Hip hop is geared towards MC. It wasn't like that before. When hip-hop was emerging, it was more about dancing and more about the party. MC was a uh, person that would actually introduce or hype the dancers. And then they start developing rhyming. And the rhyming became amazing commodity as like a, a recorded music. So now MC is a seminal element in hip hop music. So MC is basically a rapper who's rhyming in very interesting ways that are kind of, uh, I would say new. I think that they actually kind of push the rhyming forward because rhyme English language had rhymes before, but the, the fact that the poetry has completely integrated with with the music at times hip-hop music seems for classical people i'm not saying that it is the case but for classic people it seems a little limiting in terms of how the aesthetics are because it's just like doing drums and a lot of it is just kind of mm. uh, sort of it's a constant for mc to rhyme on it and then it's it's a um, you know uh, it's a vehicle for the mc to uh present their talent I think there's a reason for that because I think that in order for the intricate rhyming to begin, there there couldn't be so many different things going on because they were developing the rhyming itself first. So MC has a great role uh, in, in our group. Is is it more correct to call it uh, to call that role an MC than a rapper? Like, does that encompass more of what he does? I like to call it MC. A lot of hip hop people call it MC. Rap is, I think, a spe specific subgenre of hip hop. Uh, it's my understanding, or, or it's a commercialized sort of idea of hip hop because they are rapping. They are rapping, but MC does more than rapping. MC actually hosts. MC MC is basically uh, calling rapper what they were in a in in their origin, right? So MC actually emceed Master of Ceremony, the ceremony being the underground party where the hip-hop was actually emerging. So they were doing more than just rhyme. That is my understanding. So if somebody listens to this and then, you know, thinks that it's completely wrong, please correct me because... Please email him directly at... No, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah. So, so you had talked about... You've compared your music, you know, uh, favorably against a lot of pop and favorably against a lot of classical. When you... Do you have a specific genre that you would place the sound of Mignawuj in? Or would you or would you say it's kind of outside of a, a genre? No, I can totally pinpoint it because... Okay. The before I talk about that, I think I'm I'm gonna have to talk about how I put together these things, right? So, uh, the underlying principle of what we do is called meta sampling. Meta sampling is the principle of borrowing or sampling foreign rationales and then by reframing them. And this is a very important concept: reframing, reframing them to 
either trigger innovation or come up with a completely new system. So what does that mean? When I first started writing this music, I decided to just use classical techniques that I know that I thought would be compatible, such as like a lot of tonal techniques or modal writings that, that are like, you know, uh, contrapuntal or even sometimes I, I mean, you played this, Casey, like there's a, a fugato exposition with the triple invertible counterpoint. So right. I put that in there. Partially, I saw something like this working before in Gershwin and uh, also specifically Piazzolla, who actually injected uh, jazz and classical techniques to tango, creating a lot of troubles for people who loved tango because tango was a national music at the time. And then Piazzolla called his music Nuevo Tango. Right? So, but in fact, if you listen to it, what he's doing is really not tango because tango had a form and then he breaks it. You know, once you break that, it's kind of like asking, okay, you have a 16 bar form on hip hop and then you probably won't go over more than five minutes or six minutes if, if you are going crazy, you know, ambitious. So what if, what would you call it? There are music that, that is like 25 minutes long and there's like eight minutes of interlude and has like a bunch of changing time signature and then the MC is rapping. Would you call that a hip hop? Would you call that a classical music? The answer is actually neither, because once you put MC in it, because it is just totally foreign, you can't quite call it as conventional classical because it will break the existing form. How I did it was to actually incorporate all the techniques that I think was compatible with this hip hop music. And with that, tried mimicking a, a beat that I liked. So what happens? Something like... Total failure happens because you, I would write something that is eight minutes, 10 minutes, 12 minutes long, that has all these different kind of things that normally totally fine in classical music, but not fine or not even like comprehensible for hip hop, therefore pushing both genres in different directions. I always compare this mm-hmm. to uh, Columbus. Columbus thought that he was going to India, but psych, he wasn't. You know, so another <laughs> example that I uh, give is that, you know, when he got there, the Indians or Indians, the natives that were there, they came out to see these people. They didn't see the ship that they came with. Why? Because they just didn't have any ideas about what, I mean, they just had no idea what that was, right? Okay, so. They just simply didn't see the ship, even though oh, okay, yeah. it was a gigantic ship, but they couldn't see it, right? So I think that's what we are doing. You know, there are a couple of examples that I can give you. One is, you know, these are two different demographic of audience reaction. One was a at least 75-year-old white male gentleman with that walker, very old, totally not normal hip-hop listener, Questionable if he listens to classical. We were we were doing a a uh, outdoor festival out in Oakland, and he was right in front, right. And then my MC, this is from him, like uh, a sad man told me this. He said, "Wow, I'm gonna give guy this guy a heart attack because he probably will go crazy. Like this is gonna, I don't know how it's gonna be." Right. And when Sandman said, "Okay, raise your hand," he was raising his hand. He was having a gay old time, and oh my gosh, he came up to him at the end of the show, saying that, "Oh my gosh, you got this. You guys did a great job. The scatting that you did, 
scatting as in the jazz scatting you know right. vocal vocal yeah. improv right so but that was his his reference point he didn't understand what this was but he knew scatting it's mm-hmm. like this must be like scatting the other example was when we were touring colorado there was younger however still older like middle-aged i think the 55 ish couple and then this husband told me you guys sound like whalers the reggae band whalers <laughs> like act yes like- yeah and i was like okay this is this you guys sound ex- it got it, it felt like i was the first time first time i saw the whalers i was like that is totally not what we sound like but thank you for enjoying this piece <laughs> so that was it I mean that's that's wow. You know, it's 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 triggering innovation basically. Meta sampling actually has a larger implications because once I realized that I brought something completely foreign to hip hop, tried to make hip hop, ended up going somewhere else, which is reframing and then triggering innovation. I start seeing that pattern everywhere. So, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, Henry Ford, he came up with the assembly line by going into or walking by the butchering plant. And then he saw that one person was doing only one job in, in a conveyor belt. They were doing one job. And then he's like, oh, you know, you know what? I'm going to use that to make my cars, mass production of cars. And then he actually implemented assembly line that way. A lot of gastronomy is like that, like David Chang. Was a Korean guy, grew up here, learned French techniques, and then, I don't know, to an extent, what they call molecular gastronomy, and he makes this different kind of stuff. Or a chef that goes to France, learning a bunch of uh, haute cuisine techniques, coming back, opening up a burger joint, and then, but sous the hell out of the meat before the grinding. You know, how you, however that you do it, would you call that a burger right. or would you call it france i mean french french food like there's a lot of innovation that's that's happening the point of meta sampling is that we distill everything everything into method methods that you can actually extract versus culture culture for me is habits and you know just it's like a way of doing things that you've been habitually continuing and there's no reason for you to keep keep doing that at all so once you see see the world that way everything is pieces of technology that i can take and then i can make new things all the time so that's the idea of this ensemble wow wow and there's a lot of um i don't even know if this was intentional it just seems like every analogy that you gave had some sort of like cross-cultural reference or a merging, uh, a cultural merging of things that, that in turn created something new. Yes. That's very cool. Yes. You know who, who's been really great at innovation? Americans have been really great at innovation up till now, in my opinion. So I think we can, <laughs> I mean, that that's a whole another, you know, can of worms totally. that we could open because I think what when people are obsessed with virtue and you know when politicians say we need to be more ethical then it's really a red flag because politicians are generally the worst type of people it doesn't matter what they are like whether left or right they're they're the worst type of people that can't create anything they just want power 
when they cannot legislate anything, but just keep saying that we need to be more virtuous, just means that we actually have no new ideas mm-hmm. coming out. So we are in in a way that we are in in a period of decadence in that that same things repeat without any real right. progress. Right. So. Oof. And we can break that, in my opinion, with Meta Zeppelin. So. Oh, that's fascinating. I love how you took that in both a, a micro level in your ensemble and then a, like on a you can envision meta sampling and a huge macro level too. How do you determine the subject matter of your pieces? Is that is that all due to the MC or is that a collaborative effort? Well, I usually come up with an idea. Generally, a lot of my pieces are kind of things that I'm dealing with and then or things I'm thinking about. And these are the topics that are sort of abstract. You know, hope springs eternal. What does that really mean? Like, you know, positivity, whatever. And I give him the music and then I give him the subject. And then he, he embodies it and he actually comes up with his, you know, interpretation. Of it. Oh, so wow. It's a lot like, you know, uh, collaboration. And I trust, I do a lot of trusting because before, the way I even hire people is like, before I hire them, I have to do a bunch of digging. And then once I hire them, I got to trust them because mm-hmm. I can't micromanage people. That's right. how I like to do things. So. How far back do you go with your relationship with Sandman? Well, it's almost like nine <laughs> years, eight, nine years. Yeah, wow. Wow. So there's a lot of proof of concept in terms of your trust with each other. It seems like that's, yeah, that's wonderful. All right. So I had a question about when I had this opportunity to um, play with you at the last second, which was, by the way, a ton of fun. (laughs) I had a, I had a ball. Um, You were, if you can talk about this, that would be great. You were also filming a documentary. Yes. We, we just finished the last interview portion of this documentary on method sampling. It's actually method sampling, not meta sampling. Methods. Okay. The examples that I mentioned, we actually located people who are doing interesting stuff. And so let me go back a little bit. So the documentary is about method sampling, but it's really about me proving my hypothesis. So I'm saying, hey, I think that everything, all the meaningful change that is innovative or like you know, rendering of completely new system will only come out of method sampling. So it's like, you know, I'm trying to prove myself wrong or right. Socrates went to Delphi and then the, uh, the oracle said, you are the wisest person. And he said, no, I don't think so. And I'm going to prove that I'm not the wisest person. He goes around and meet all these people and then realizes that everybody was kind of stupid because they didn't know that what they didn't know. But Socrates knew that he didn't know. So I'm doing kind of the opposite. I'm saying that this is it and prove me wrong. So I'm going to go around and meet people. And here is where you did meta sample. And that's what changed your sort of perspective on this particular field that you revolutionized. You know, uh, so you did that um, and you did that filming during your tour, but it sounds like you also had a lot of other components outside of the actual concerts that were happening. That's right. Yes. So the, the documentary identifies, it's a short documentary. It's going to be 30 minutes long. It identifies um, 
three innovators other than EMN. So one is Mark Brew, who is a good friend of ours, and he is a internationally renowned uh, choreographer who is disabled. He can't can't move his like what, what do you call it quadriplegic? So uh, yeah, or paraplegic. So from waist down, on. he's he's wheelchair. Okay, so, right. Yeah. Yes, he had an accident and. Um, he was, he was a ballet dancer before when he was 20 years old. He was promising. He had a promising career. And it got, you know, stopped abruptly with a terrible uh, traffic accident. And then he, he didn't give up. He relearned all of his ballet and modern techniques and then reframed these movements and created his own language. And it's quite spectacular. He commissioned us uh, a long time, um, five years ago, and ever since then we've been good friends. The other guy is um, William Padilla Brown, who is actually kind of getting well known now. Uh, he he published two first first two books on cultivating cordyceps, which is a kind of mushroom that is like uh, that's been unavailable for Westerners to grow, and he actually. He's a complete self-taught scientist, much like James Lovelock, who invented Gaia theory. And he, he learned this cultivation method by looking at Thai YouTube videos. And then he changed it and he made a book out of it. it was, it's just a fascinating story. And wow. um, the third person is a tiny house builder in Pacific Northwest, um, Abel Zill. He actually incorporates shipbuilding. Uh, techniques to build the tiny houses because he builds like inverted ship basically oh wow instead of like house yeah what's the timeline um, on the release of the documentary so we have finished the last interview with Will and then uh, March at the end of the March they're going to finish the B-roll and then we're going to start cutting the footage and, uh, and then we will release it Hopefully by the end of this year. Wonderful. Oh, that's exciting. You know, hit the festival circuit. Yeah, that's really exciting. So if people want to find out more information about uh, Ensemble McNewooj, where can they go? They can go to com, which is M-I-K-N-A-W-O-O-J.com, which is my name spelled backwards, Juwan Kim, McNewooj. And... Um, and or you can go to our fa- Facebook, facebook.com slash And that's our show for today. My deepest thanks to Juwan Kim for his time on the podcast and for inviting me on tour in the first place. Our theme music is composed by Not Dead composer Thomas Barber. Check out his stuff at thomasbarber.com. Web development support is provided by Tina at citybeautifuldesign.com. Keep Classical Weird is created and edited by me, Casey Bozell. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Stay safe and stay weird.